waiting. Waiting. I don't like waiting. I am not a patient man when it comes to biding time. Maybe some of you are the same way. Have you ever stopped to think about how much time we spend waiting? We wait at stoplights, drive-through lanes, railroad crossings, security lines, checkout lines, and check-in lines. We wait to board a flight to our destination, and when we arrive at our destination, we wait to deplane. We wait for an open table at our favorite restaurant. We wait for a sales associate to help us with a purchase. We wait to see the doctor, the dentist, the optometrist, the therapist, the auto mechanic, and the license branch clerk. I just wish they'd change the name from waiting room to just a minute room in hopes that we wouldn't spend so much time there. And sometimes we wait at home for in-home service. Last year, Americans wasted more than 2.75 billion hours waiting at home for some type of service, a utility hookup, appliance repair, the delivery of furniture, you name it. In the lost hours of that waiting, it is equivalent to 1.3 million people being out of work for a year. Wow. We wait on hold to speak with computer technicians who we can't understand to fix problems they can't understand. <laughs> I, I like this automated on hold message from one company. It says, we appreciate your patience. At this time, we are receiving a much higher than normal call volume. If longevity runs in your family, then stay on the line and you will be assisted by the next representative. Sometimes you feel that way. Am I going to die while I'm on hold? And we wait. Research suggests that in a lifetime of 70 years, the average person spends three of it, three years, just waiting. Waiting. And we're not very good at it. But the events of this weekend that we celebrate, this weekend which rests at the very heart of our faith, this weekend and its events teach us how we can survive the wait. You see, Friday was the day when Jesus took it all to the cross, our sin, our guilt, our penalty, our punishment. It was and still is and always will be the darkest day in all of history. As a kid, I could never understand how we called it Good Friday when it seemed like it was so bad. And Sunday, the day we celebrate today, is the most incredible day of history. That day of His resurrection, the most glorious, death-defying, hope-raising, joy-filling day since the very beginning of time. So you've got Good Friday and you've got Resurrection Sunday, but what about Saturday? The day in between. The day with no name. John Ortberg said, It's the day after this, but the day before that. The day after a prayer gets asked, but the day before it gets answered. It's the day in between, the day between despair and joy, brokenness and healing, confusion and understanding, fear and hope, life and death. Saturday is the in-between day, the day of God's silence. And silent it was. After the commotion of Thursday and Friday, Jerusalem seemed to feel pretty calm on that Saturday. The religious leaders 
who Jesus had criticized and called a brood of vipers, they were feeling pretty satisfied and safe at that moment because Jesus was gone. He was out of their midst once and for all. The disciples, they felt anything but safe. The crowd in Jerusalem that had gathered for that feasting, I think they were just confused. In the Gospels, folks, we learn a lot about the disciples on Friday, and we learn about a lot about what happened to them on Sunday. But there is not one word, not one word in the Gospels about what took place on that Saturday. So we can only speculate. We do know that Judas by this time is already dead and that Thomas is off somewhere alone, devastated by the sorrow of losing the Lord for whom he had pledged his willingness to die. John, John was likely helping and comforting Mary since that's the last thing Jesus asked of him while on the cross. Peter may have been too ashamed to even show his face on Saturday, cringing every time he heard a rooster crow. The rest of the disciples may have found solace in gathering together, remembering the incredible lessons they had learned from this Jesus, the most brilliant man they had ever met. But of all of our speculation of this, I am confident on that day they were reflecting on all that had happened and I think they were experiencing two very understandable feelings at that moment in time. I think they were, first of all, feeling helpless. I think the apostles felt helpless. I think there was a sense of, of, of failure there. We have failed. We should have done more. We should have said something different. How could we have missed Judas's intentions? That awkward kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane, that kiss of death, and that is where that expression comes from, that moment in the garden. Why, if we had intervened more quickly, maybe Jesus would still be alive. And then don't you know that every time Peter reflected upon the three times that he said, I don't even know the man, that heart tears of failure filled his eyes and stained his cheeks as a reminder of the stain upon his soul for that deed. I'm sure they felt helpless. I'm sure they felt like failures. I think they also felt hopeless. I don't know that any of them even verbalized it. But you've you, you got to know that in the back of their mind, they're thinking it. Did Jesus fail? I mean, the evidence of failure seemed overwhelming on that Saturday. Jesus had not been able to overcome the hatred of the religious leaders. He was not able to stand up against the power of Rome. And he was not able to sway the apathy of the fickle crowds. Why Jesus hadn't been able to instill enough courage in his own disciples to show up at the cross. Only John braved the moment. And from what John may have told him later, you know guys, Jesus only quoted scripture once. You'd think, wouldn't you, that the Messiah would have quoted a lot of scripture from the cross, but he only quoted scripture once. And it wasn't from Psalm 30, those wonderful, joyful words, weeping remains for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Oh, when those words, he didn't quote from Psalm 30. He didn't quote from Psalm 23, those comforting words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He quoted from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
If this one who was closer to the Father than any other could feel abandoned in his hour of need, then where's the hope for the rest of us? Jesus had taught them to be meek and humble and to love their enemies, and look what it got him. It got him a cold slab in a borrowed tomb. They had been so sure that he was the one. Do you really think that Thomas was the only one that had doubts? Saturday. Saturday is the day after your best dream dies and you have to pick up the pieces of your life and go on and you don't know how you're going to go on. Have you ever felt helpless and hopeless? Have you ever felt that you've failed or that your dreams have failed? And have you ever wondered why there is a Saturday in the story to begin with? I mean, why couldn't Jesus have just died and then joy of joys, and a couple hours later, be resurrected and spare the whole world such helpless and hopeless feelings of Saturday. Why three days? Well, I think the Apostle Paul gives us a little bit of a hint and insight into that. Uh, he writes to the church at Corinth these words, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So Paul says twice in one sentence, all this is according to the Scriptures. The third day, according to the Scriptures. Now I am fascinated with the unique symbolism of certain numbers in the Bible, and none is more captivating than the number three. It is often called the number of God, and for good reason, not the least of which is the concept of the triune nature of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, three in one. But that's only the beginning. The number three surfaces over and over again in the Scriptures. Noah had three sons through whom the human race was reestablished in this world after the flood. In the Old Testament, there were three great patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The angels sing before God this threefold hymn of praise. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The pillars of the Christian life are faith, hope, and love. At the birth of Jesus, he received three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. His public ministry lasted three years. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed three times while the disciples slept. Peter denied that he knew Jesus three times. According to Jewish timekeeping, he was crucified on the third hour of the day. His cross was one of three Roman crosses on Golgotha. The placard that they put over his head that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, was written in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. He suffered from three wounds, his head, his hands, and his feet. Three women named Mary stood at the foot of the cross. Mary, the wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene, and of course, Mary, his mother. That's just a sample, folks. It's not all of the threes, just a glimpse. And that's not even the best part of this whole concept of three. Throughout the Old Testament, we are confronted with third-day stories. When Abraham feared that he was going to have to sacrifice his son Isaac, it was on the third day that God intervened and provided a substitute in the ram that was caught in the bushes. When Joseph's brothers, who had sold him into slavery, came to Egypt to buy food during the famine, they were arrested and put in prison, but on the third day, 
they were released. After Rahab helped the spies escape from Jericho, she told them to hide, and she said, on the third day, it'll be safe to go home. Esther prepared herself spiritually for three days before she approached the king to save her people, the Jews, and on the third day, she was graciously received in the court and the presence of the king. The pattern seems so well established in the Old Testament that the prophet Hosea wrote this, Come, let us return to the Lord. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. This, then, is the pattern of third-day stories. The bad news, the darkness, always happens on the first day. Deliverance, the good news, always takes place on the third day. But the middle day, the middle day is the day of waiting. Perhaps one of the most dramatic third day stories in the Old Testament is the story of the prophet Jonah. You know, Jonah ran away from what God had called him to do, got on a ship, headed away as far away from God as he could. There was a storm came up. The sailors threw him overboard because he said, I'm the cause of the storm. And a great fish came up and swallowed him whole. Now, on, by anybody's account, that's a bad day. <laughs> you get swallowed by a fish, not a good day. That's day one. That's the darkness. That's the blackness. On day three, the great fish spits him up onto the shore and he goes off to preach salvation to the Ninevites. That's the day of deliverance. That's the day of good news. But on the middle day, what was Jonah doing? Waiting. Waiting in the darkness. Waiting for God. Matthew records this incident in chapter 12. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see miraculous signs from you. And he answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of of the earth. When Jesus had to come up with a picture of this climactic moment in his own life, the grandest moment of history, he says, it's just like Jonah. It's a third day story. It's according to the scriptures. But there's another reason, equally important, why I believe that this was a three-day process. It's the picture of our own lives. Sin entered this perfect world and destroyed what God had created. That was on the first day. That's where the blackness and the despair comes in. But God has promised, through his grace and the sacrifice of Christ, that someday we will be resurrected and restored and, and will live with him for eternity. That's the day of deliverance. That's the day of good news. That's Sunday. In the meantime, we're living on Saturday, in between the bad news of Friday and the good news of Sunday. And the problem with living life on day two, the problem of living in a Saturday world is that day two is sort of like day one in the sense that the problem is still here, the trouble is still here, the pain is still here, the suffering is still here, the sorrow is still here, and there isn't anything you can do about it. You can't make it go away, or you cannot change the outcome by human power. 
on day three, God brings deliverance, and that's when we rejoice and celebrate. That's the day of glorious good news. But on day two, it's this miserable waiting. And here's the problem. Here's the problem, folks. On day two, in a Saturday world, you don't know if it's a third-day story until the third day. The disciples didn't know that there was a third day coming. They're just miserable on Saturday. They don't know what God has in plan. They did not pick up on all of that. They were not prepared for the resurrection that had happened. On Saturday, they thought it was all over. You see, on Saturday, you don't know if it's a third-day story or not. Let me see if I can illustrate what I mean. Uh, we're, we're at the beginning of the baseball season. Most of you probably have uh, teams that you cheer for, hope that make to the World Series. Last year, uh, you know, I am an, uh, I'm a lifelong St. Louis Cardinals fan, okay? And so, you know, every year you hope that they'll get to the World I really didn't think last year they were probably going to go to the World Series, but wouldn't you know what? They made it. And so they get there, and you start getting excited about it. And then comes game six against the Rangers, and it really looks bleak. This is the bad news. This is, the, 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 this is a Saturday moment for the Cardinals. They're down. They're only one strikeout away on several occasions of, of losing the World Series. And somehow, some way, they come back in the 11th game of that sixth, or 11th inning of that sixth game, which ushers in the seventh game, which becomes the day of deliverance. And they win the World Series. The doubting was gone. There was celebration in this place. You see, at game six, you, you, were just, you couldn't figure out what was going to happen. You didn't know. Game seven comes, it's deliverance. Now, in contrast to that, I have a son-in-law and a dear friend who are ardent Chicago Cubs fans. The Cubs haven't won the World Series for over a hundred years. And I'm here to tell you, theirs is not a third-day story. If you're a Cubs fan, I've got news for you. It's not even Saturday, it's Friday. Yesterday was Friday, today's Friday, tomorrow's Friday. It'll always be Friday if you're a Cubs fan. In Jerusalem on Friday, Jesus bore our sins and suffered the anguish of the cross. In Jerusalem on Saturday, the disciples bore their sorrow and suffered the anguish of not knowing. On Saturday, heaven was silent. I said early on, we're terrible at waiting. And when you live in a Saturday world, the pain in your life can be simply overwhelming. You meet somebody and you think she is the love of your life and you are just at that point where you're ready to commit to that relationship and she walks away because she doesn't feel the same way that you do and you think, I'll never find anybody again that I felt that way. Or maybe you've lost your job and you know at your age, that was your best shot at preparing for retirement. Now you're gonna to have to work for a lot longer at a menial job if you could even find a job at this age just to make ends meet. Your marriage fails, your child suffers with a disability, your physician tells you the cancer is inoperable but they'll try to treat it, you pray for the panic attacks to end but they don't end, you pray for the memories of abuse to go away but they don't go away. Heaven is silent. It's life in a Saturday world. Cole Winnefeld is one of our youth in this congregation. Cole is eight years old. That's a picture of he and his sister. 
Three years ago this month, Cole uh, was diagnosed as having a neuroblastoma. And so he and his family travel back from here to New York City on a regular basis to the Sloan Kettering Hospital for his treatments. As you might imagine, the treatments take their toll, but he and his family are truly inspirational as they deal with this um, tough and horrible disease. Carol, Cole's mother, emailed me back in February and spoke of the spiritual struggle of so many of the families that they had met there at the hospital and people that they are familiar with. And with her permission, I am going to read part of her email. We've lost five of our son's friends since Christmas. To say we have been shaken would be an understatement. We have always held true to our faith, God's will, and guidance. Our friends, who may or may not be Christians, some are, some were, some simply are not, tell us that they pray. Their prayers, however, are not answered. They beg, they plead, nothing happens. So quite simply, why, they ask, should they even try anymore? One parent moaned, why did my Juilliard-trained ballerina dancer lose her leg? I prayed, I was faithful, now this. Carol and Mike, despite their son's struggle, contend that they are a family who is blessed, that God is with them, and that Cole has shown them God's goodness and grace. But other parents don't want to hear that. They just want to know why heaven is silent. I wish I had an answer for him. I don't know why heaven is silent on those days when we are trying to pick up the pieces of our lives and we don't know how to go on. I wish I had an answer for that, but I can tell you this, that's life in a Saturday world. And that's why the whole story comes together so as we live out our lives in this Saturday world, we can understand where God is going it's that same helpless and hopeless feeling that plagued the disciples on the Saturday between Friday and Sunday. It's that feeling of bitter failure and broken dreams that comes on the day in between. And everyone in this room has at one time or another lived life in the hazy gloom of Saturdays. Because when your dream dies on Friday, what do you do on Saturday? May I suggest you have about three options. The first one is you can give up on hope. Why bother? There can't be any hope. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? In other words, they had conceded defeat. They had already concluded that it was always going to be Saturday. There wasn't going to be anything better than the day in between. And so they gave up on hope. I'm telling you, don't, don't give up on hope. Or you can turn away from the truth. Hey, we were deceived. We weren't given the truth. Paul warned Timothy about those who would wander away from the faith, from the truth. They're so disillusioned by the silence of Saturday that they walk away from it altogether. Or there's a third option. And the third option is you can, you can wait. You can wait on God. You can learn to trust when you cannot see beyond Saturday. And here's the thing about life on Saturday. The Lord is all you've got. 
on Christmas, all of heaven marveled to see the God of the universe lying in a manger. But on Saturday, all of heaven marveled to see the God of the universe lying in a tomb. You see, if the God of the universe can be found in a tomb, then where can't he be found in your life? In the moment of your greatest need, at the point of your greatest sorrow, he is there. When the bottom falls out of your life, he is there. When it seems like Saturday will never end, he is there. It's a Saturday world, and he's all you've got. But then, in reality, he's all you need because of Easter. This is why today means so much. I can handle my everyday life in a Saturday world because I know what happened on Sunday. In the world it may be Saturday, but in my soul it's Sunday morning. And I know that no matter what comes my way, God can handle it because he has already given us the ultimate deliverance. We know the end of the story. Our story is a third day story because of Easter. And that's why this day is like no other. I don't like waiting, probably never will, but I can handle Saturday because of Easter's triumph. You see, Easter's triumph is worth the wait. In your soul this morning, is it the darkness of Saturday or is it Sunday morning? If you do not know Jesus as your Savior, I can't think of a better day to say, Today's the day, Lord. I want you to give me the third day story. While we stand and while we sing, you come to the Christ.